Zalman and Esther Roth, and this is in the honor of the yard site of Mrs. Esther Roth's father on the 5th of Adar coming up. Meshulam Zalman, the 5th of Adar, it's tonight. Meshulam Zalman ben Wolf Hersh Hakoyhen. May his neshama have a very, very great aliyah to the greatest of heights. May he draw down lots and lots of brachas. Blessings may he channel for you and your family for all the good in the material and in the, sp- and in the spiritual. Um, also, Luschus, uh, in honor of the birthday of their daughter, who is also still in need of a Rafua Shalema, Sheva Bas Esther Hencha. But her birthday is the 6th of Adar, so that's tomorrow night. May she have a complete and total recovery. And Ashnas Bracha Natslacha, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful good year uh, in everything, in the material and in the spiritual. And also in honor of a grandson's birthday, Chaim Usher, Ben Mimi Miriam, whose birthday was the second of Adar. Also, lots and lots of nachas from him and from all the grandchildren and grandchildren. Mazel and Bracha, and only Simcha, and only, only good and happy things. Another dedication this week, also on the Shear and the CD. Uh, a dedication, this is by my family, my father and uh, his uh, family. This is in honor of the first yard site of my uncle, my father's younger brother. Uh, someone has been very, very, very dear to me in my life. Very close uncle. Always, uh, we ha- he was our fun uncle. We always had an amazing, good time with him. Uh, sadly, passed away last year after a stroke, being ill for a few years, and he never had children. He was married for many years, never had, never merited to have children. Uh, they're giving in a special tour in his name, which I'm flying into New York, Bezos Hashem on Wednesday. Um, so Eliezer Yehuda ben Chanat Sivya, all of Ashalom upon his first yard site, the seventh of Ador, uh, may his neshama have the greatest aliyah to the greatest, greatest, greatest of heights. And only, only to him and his uh, wife, 
also her neshama, and um, may they channel lots and lots of blessings to everyone for goodness and only wonderful things. May this be a big schus for them. Okay. I have a super exciting announcement to make. Next week, Matzah Shabbos, March 3rd, the Shabbos after Purim, we're going to have a spectacular concert here at Man Yisrael with a new and up-and-coming um, Jewish Hasidic group band, Zusha and his, uh, and his group. This is going to be here at Mayon. Uh, there's a new sound of Hasidic music. They're fabulous. And but please, please, please go get your ticket because we are limited in space. Uh, uh, one day, Bekar of Mamish will have a huge, 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 huge center with a lot of space. But right now, we can hold maybe 130, 100 and something like that seats. So uh, this is going to sell out. So please, if you want to join us for this amazing concert, come here. I mean, go to mayon.com, M-A-A-Y-O-N.com, slash Zusha, and order your tickets. Um, I would like to announce before we begin the class, this past Sunday we started a wonderful series of classes, Sunday mornings. Um, It's a course, three-part course, which has three semesters, three parts, three semesters. Each semester is six classes. We just began the course. It's a very powerful and thorough study of Moshiach the up-and-coming redemption, called Mashiach Decoded. Now, the first class was this past Sunday, but it was the introduction. And we got to advertising this late, so um, many people didn't know about it. So if you missed the first class, the introduction, that's okay, because it was only the introduction. We didn't really get into the what we call the meat and potatoes of the class. So Be'ezer Sashem, if you want to join... This coming Sunday, you can still get the entire, the enti- even though each class will stand on its own, but it's, of course, better to get the whole thing together. So it's Sundays at 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the class is going to be going till the week of pa- Pesach. So from now until all the Sunday mornings, until the week of Passover, which is March 25th, come join for the next five weeks. It's really, really worthwhile coming. Um, we will have the second semester sometime to be announced, sometime probably after Pesach. I mean, it has to be after Pesach, but probably between Pesach and Shavuot. And then there will be another semester, the last one on, uh, in the summer. That will give you a solid foundation on all knowledge about Moshiach. And why is it important to study about Moshiach? Because by studying about Moshiach, we actualize the redemption. We make Mashiach come. And I just saw something really, really inspiring 10 minutes ago in a Sefer, in a book, from a talk from the Lubavitcher Rebbe in which he said something really, and I opened up to it. He says that, you know, he says, you know, to think about the idea that bringing Mashiach was the intention of Moshe Rabbeinu. When Moshe Rabbeinu gave us the Torah, took the Jewish people out of Egypt, he was dissatisfied that going out of Egypt was only a temporary redemption. So Moshe put all of his work and effort to make this world a godly place. And after Moshe Rabbeinu came all the generations with all the prophets and all the sages of the Mishnah and the Talmud and all the self-sacrifice and all the Kabbalists and all the saints, saintly tzaddikim, unmeasurable. 
he, he lists particularly the Bolshemtov, the successor of the Bolshemtov, the Holy Magid, and all the other Hasidic masters. And he says, if we were to live together with these tzaddikim, and once they are going to return after the resurrection of the dead, they're never dead, but after the resurrection, and when these great people, we really are nobody. We are really, really nobody. To stand next to these giants, we're not even little ants. So we would be totally unnoticed. But yet, we are given the job to complete all the work that they began. And the halacha is that the job, ain't hadover, a mitzvah, nikra, the mitzvah is only called Hashem Goimra, the one who completes it. So who are the ones who are going to complete the work of all the generations? Us. If we, if we, it's given in our hands, if we volunteer to do it, if we step up to the plate to do something, not to be a standing you know, observer, a passive observer on the side and say, oh, let God do whatever, bring Mashiach or not. No, 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 it's up to us. We can make it happen. There's actually a halacha in the laws of Shabbos. In the laws of Shabbos, we know there are 39 different types of work that are forbidden. And these are called the main labors of Shabbos that are forbidden. One of the labors of Shabbos that is forbidden is makabepatish. Makabepatish means after you finish making a table, the carpenter's cutting and chiseling and measuring and, and, and banging and... He does all the work involved in making this table or this piece of furniture. So right before it's over, he takes the hammer and he gives one zets on top of the table. One smack, gives one bang on the table just for the extra sturdiness. So that's considered a, a work on Shabbos. One is liable as much as any, as any of the other work because he finished the job. The carpenter will not leave the work until he gives that last and final bunk on the table just to show it's strong and sturdy. So what's the significance of Makavapatish, of that labor of Shabbos? The significance is the work is completed. All the work of all the generations are incomplete. How do we know? Because Mashiach isn't here yet. Godliness, Hashem is not visible everywhere in the world. We still have public schools that are being shot up by kids, by, sadly. So these, as long as that is still happening in the world, the world is not, we haven't completed our work of making the world completely godly. When Mashiach will be here, that will be. Who is it up to? Well, here's the amazing thing. It can be up to me and you if we do something. So let's start by coming to learn about Mashiach. Because the Rebbe said an interesting thing. The surest way to make Mashiach come and the way that will make it come in the most fastest, quickest way. There's many things. We give charity, we do acts of goodness and kindness. But the thing that has the quality to speed the redemption up with enormous speed is the more people that study Torah about the redemption. So here is an awesome opportunity. So come, join us next week Sunday. Okay, that's my promotion. And now we're ready for the class. This week is Parshas Tetzaveh, but it's also the Shabbat, the Shabbos before Purim. And we take out two Torahs, two Torah scrolls. And we're going to read one Torah scroll. We're going to read about the, uh, the Parsha of the week, which is all about the priestly garments, the Big Day Kahuna. And then we're going to take in the tech, second Torah scroll, in which we're going to read about 
It's called Parsha Zohar. Parsha Zohar means remembrance. The Parsha of remembrance. We have to remember that which Amalek did to the Jewish people. Remember that which Amalek did to the Jewish people. Amalek, descendants of Esav, um, the, they are considered the ultimate anti-Semites. They came to fight the Jewish people right after we went out of Egypt, after God performed the most spectacular miracles, and Amalek came to greet us, and, there was, and we fought Amalek, but we could not defeat them. We only were able to weaken Amalek, and Amalek remains an enemy, remains a power in this world. Until the coming of Moshiach, they will not be destroyed. And finally, at the end of days, Amalek will be completely obliterated. So we don't know today exactly who Amalek is, but we just know that the seeds of Amalek are still within the world. And we, the Jewish people, have always encountered anti-Semites on various different levels. And, but Amalek is like the ultimate anti-Semite. And every year we're reminded that we have to fight against Amalek and erase Amalek. And the Hasidic masters discuss that that doesn't mean physical battle, because we can't, we're not out, you know, we don't have a, an ability today's days to deal with the physical Amalek. Uh, the war that we fight is a spiritual war on Amalek. The Yetzirah, the evil inclination in our own heart, which is also a, an energy. We fight against the energy of Amalek. But we have to remember it every year and evoke a hatred. We're, we're commanded to hate Amalek because Amalek is pure evil. And pure evil needs to be eradicated from the world. And so once a year we gather in shul and we read this. This is the most important Torah reading in the whole year. And that's why everybody is supposed to come hear it. Even people who ordinary would not come to shul. If women don't come to shul every Shabbos, this Shabbos, it's incumbent upon everybody to be in shul and to listen to the last reading of the Torah. It's the last aliyah, which is the reading of eradication of Amalek. And Amalek is very directly connected. We read it the Shabbos before Purim because Haman, the whole story of Purim is the story of Haman and Achashverosh. It happened in Persia, but the one who instigated the whole libel and the, or the whole campaign to destroy the Jewish people was a man called Haman. And Haman is Ben Amdasa. He comes, he's an Amaliki. Okay? He comes from Amalek. That's his ancestry. And that's where his hatred to the Jewish people. So on Purim, when we defeated Amalek, so every year Purim we have a special power in the world, a very special energy in the world, to destroy evil. One of the things about Purim is, it's the power to, not to eradicate and destroy evil. And in order to evoke that energy within us on Purim, in which we eradicate Amalek, that's why you, you, in, in Shul, when you hear the Megillah, we bang. Don't take it lightly when we're banging and we're stamping our feet. We're literally stamping out evil when we're doing that. People think it's a little childish thing. So you bang a little, you make a ruckus. It's just having fun. You know, Jewish fun is very, very, very high. It's very, very spiritual. It's very godly. We have no idea what kind of influence we have in the world, in the spiritual cosmos, when we bang the Haman. Because what we're really doing is we're breaking forces of evil within the, within the world. We have the power to do that on Purim. But in order to gain that power, we need to get the power from the Torah. So the week before, on Shabbos before, because we know Shabbos empowers the week, we remember the Torah instructs us to eradicate what? Amalek. So when the Torah gives us this mission, so during the week when Purim comes, 
we have the ability to eradicate Amalek. It's interesting, Rapinchas of Koritz, one of the great Hasidic masters, says on the Pasuk, how do we know that, I mean, the war against Amalek happened not Purim. The, the initial war, the confrontation with Moshe and the Jewish people in the desert, didn't happen on Purim. The war against Amalek happened after Pesach. Uh, so sometime after, it was before, before the giving of the Torah. Between Pesach and Shavuos, sometime in between, I don't know exactly which day, was right before Chaydash Sivan, at the end of the month of Iyar, okay, in the end of May. Right, May Mar, um, so at that time is when Amalek came to confront the Jewish people. But why do we do it on Purim? Because we said before, later in history, our showdown with Amalek, we went head to head against Amalek when it was Mordechai versus Haman. But he says it's actually hinted to in the Chumash. Why? It says when God tells us to fight Amalek, it says, Kiyod al ka. God's hand is on his throne. It's, the, the, the Pasuk says, Kiyod, Hashem's hands, al ka, is on the throne of Hashem. Mulchama la Hashem ba'amalek, it is a war against Amalek, midor dor from generation to generation. So he says an interesting thing. Simply it means, God has lifted his arm, Hashem has lifted his hand with an oath. The oath that God took is that he is going to fight Amalek until it's completely obliterated. Evil cannot survive. Evil must be eradicated. So, but he says an interesting thing. He says, Yod, the hand, is spelled Yodalid, which refers to the 14th day of Adar. al Ka, it's on the hand, it's on the throne of God, Hashem's name, yud Kevovke, but it only mentions half of God's name, the Yud and the He. The Yud and the He represents, is, number, is 15. Yud is 10, He is, is 5, is 15. So Yod is 14, and yud hey is the 15th. So what is it referring to? It's referring to the 14th and the 15th of Adar. That's when we have the power to eliminate Amalek. So what I would like to do is relate to you an amazing story, which we're going to get to, Be'ezra Sashem, of an elimination of Amalek that happened on Purim. An unbelievable story. But in order to appreciate that, this is an intralude to that story. The question over here is, why was Amalek such a threat to the Jewish people? What was their power? What is their strength? The Jewish people, when we went out of Egypt, we had just defeated Pharaoh, Paro, with his armies. Now, Paro and his armies, Paro was like, like, you know, you would say a formidable army. It's like, you know, the, the, the Chinese army, the Russian army. I'm talking about a massive force. In those days, they were the superpowers. They were like the United States military. So it was a very, very, very powerful army. And we, de- we, we defeat, God defeated them for us. Right. Amalek seemed to be like a little tribe, more like, you know, there was a group of Hezbollah coming against us. Okay, Hezbollah is backed by the Iranians, fine. But we're not dealing with, with, with an army like, like the Egyptians. And what was this big deal that Amalek was coming, especially if you take into consideration, it says, when the Jews left Egypt, it says, V'chamishim alu b'nei Yisrael, the Jewish people went out armed from Egypt. So the Jerusalem Talmud says that they were so well armed, the Jewish people, that they had either five, every Jew had five different types of weapons, 
or v'chamishim, 15 weapons, different gears in the, in the Jerusalem Talmud. That means we were, we had all the weapons, there were 600,000 Jewish men, a serious army, right? And so Amalek, how, much, how many people did they come? I think they come with 600,000 people. And yet, we, could, we, we, we beat them, but we didn't deny it, we didn't destroy them completely. And there were times that they were winning the war, and it depended on Moshe Rabbeinu lifting his arm and putting down his arm. It seems that there was so much effort put into this war when it should have been chick-chock. It should have been a war that we would have won just hands down. We were militarily, we were much stronger than the Amalekim. That's what it seems like. So why is it that Amalek presented such a threat and evoked as a result of that such anger and such wrath from, from us, from, Hash, from God, on God's end, that it is our responsibility to eradicate Amalek completely from the face of the earth for all generations. And this becomes the, not the eternal war, can't call it eternal war because it will be, Amalek will not exist for all of eternity, but the war that enables eternity, it enables the world to continue existing forever, ever, ever because evil has been eradicated. So this becomes the ultimate battle. So why? What's the severity of this Amalek that created this? So it's not really Amalek, it's a certain weakness in the Jewish people. The Talmud, the Gemara, um, Rashi says this to us. That right before Amalek came, the Jewish people questioned. Um, what happened was, they came to a place, they didn't have any water, and they complained to Moshe about water. And we all know the story that God told Moshe to go out and find a rock and hit the rock. Moshe goes and hits the rock and he brings the water for the Jewish people. But it says over there in the Chumash that when the Jewish people complained about water, it wasn't just that they were thirsty. They were just testing if God is with them. They went a little while, even though they had miracles after miracles after miracles after miracles, still, they still turned around and said, are you with me? Is God with me or not? They doubted for a moment that God was not with them. And the moment they doubted whether God was with them or they thought that God is not with them, so that's why God abandoned them. And when God abandoned them, Amalek is compared to a dog that came to bite them. It's like a father going with a child, and the father is protecting the child. They're going through a very, very, very dangerous, dangerous neighborhood. And there's all kinds of thugs, there's all kinds of dangers, there's stray dogs, there's everything dangerous in this place. And the father is literally fighting off all these threats for his son. And then as and the father is holding the son's hand, and as they're walking, the little boy meets a stranger, and he says, did you see my father? So the father gets upset. What do you mean, did you see my father? <laughs> How do you think you're alive now? These, they wanted to shred you to pieces. You're alive because I was fighting these people off. I was fighting these threats off. So what does the father do? He, he, that prompts him to walk away from his child. Not completely. He's stay, staying in the shadows. But he allows him to be vulnerable. And at that time, a dog comes and he bit him. So really, the amole comes as a result of the Jewish people distancing themselves from Hashem. So let's understand a little bit better this whole concept of Amalek and what's, what's the idea behind it. On Daf Yud Dalid, also on Mesechtas Megillah, the Talmud is talking about the story when Haman comes to Achashverosh and he brings him 10,000 Kikar Kesef. 
a fortune of money, talents of silver, 10,000 kikar kesavs, an enormous amount of money. And he wants to bribe Achashverosh, that Achashverosh should allow him to exterminate the Jews. Um, when Achashverosh hears what happens, Achashverosh says, you can keep the money, and he takes off his ring, and he gives it to Haman, he says, the Jewish people, you can do whatever you want to them. So the Talmud says, Mashal Achashverosh v'Haman, there's a parable. To understand the story of Achashverosh Muhammad, let me give you a parable. The parable is, to what is this compared? L'shnei b'nei Adam to two people. L'echad sadehu. One of them had a mound of earth in his field. Okay? This person had a mound of earth. L'echad sadehu. And the other one had a ditch in his field. Two people, their neighbors. One guy has a ditch running through his entire field. The other one has a pile of earth in his field. Amar miyatunli tells Abedamim. No, Balacharitz Amar. So the, the, the one who has the ditch says, Oh, if only I can buy this guy's earth, because then I can fill my ditch. Okay? He has a ditch, he has an empty space. So he says, if only I can go to the other guy and I, I would pay him so that he can give me all that dirt that he has, all the earth that he has, and I will take it and fill my ditch. Balatel Omar. Well, what he didn't realize is that the Balatel, the owner of the field that has the mound of dirt, says, I need a dumping place. I have this extra sand. If only I can... Re- buy the space, the ditch, so that I can dump all my extra dirt and I can dump it into that guy's ditch. It happened to me that they both met in the bar and they're talking to each other. So the guy of the ditch says to the owner of the, of the, of the, of the mound, you know, why don't you sell me your mound? I need dirt. You have a lot of dirt. Sell me the dirt. Armalai says, <laughs> You're gonna pay. I'm looking for a place to dump. You're doing me a favor. I don't need the money. Keep the money. I'm so happy. I was willing even to pay for it to get rid of it. But now that you want to take it, take it. And I wish you do it. So that's what happened. The king took off his ring. So what is the Medrash trying to say? Haman is an anti-Semite. He hates the Jewish people. He wants to, but he doesn't know. He thinks that Achashverosh doesn't have a hatred to them. He thinks the king of Persia is kind of friends to the Jews. Maybe he thought so because we know that when Achashverosh made a, uh, the great, great, great party, when he celebrated after three years of being king, he celebrated and he made a big, 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 big banquet and he invited everybody. And guess what? Lo and behold, he invited the Jews to the party as well. Not only that, Mordechai became a minister. So he sees that Achashverosh has some uh, friendship to the Jews. So he's thinking, how am I going to get Achashverosh to allow... So he figures he's going to buy them off with a huge bribe. So he brings all that silver to Achashverosh. Achashverosh says, the Jews? I hate them as much as you do. <laughs> There's this extra... Right? And, 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 so therefore, take him for free. Do with them whatever you want. You're doing me a favor by destroying them. That's the Gemara. 
And that's why the Gemara tells us, to, the Gemara gives us this whole marshal, this whole metaphor, this whole example to, uh, that we should understand what was going on over here. The question over here is, whenever the Talmud gives us a metaphor, it's because something is not understood over here in which we need some clarification. By, by analyzing the metaphor, we get a deeper understanding of really what's going on. But really when you're thinking about it, you know, the concept that there were Jew haters throughout, throughout history, that's not a new thing. It's actually one of the greatest mysteries of the world, but it's an absolute fact, and it's, an, it's a disease that's here and that's been plaguing mankind from the beginning of time or from the beginning of Jewish history. The Jewish people were always hated, no matter in which condition we were. When the Jewish people were doing really good, we were, dis- we were hated. When Jewish people were paupers and were doing really, really bad, we were also disliked. Jewish people were liked, were, 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 were disliked when they behaved Jewish, and Jewish people were disliked when they tried to assimilate and tried to become very, very non-Jewish. Jewish people were always, there was always persecution. There was always anti-Semitism. So the fact that there were two anti-Semites who got together, Haman and Achashverosh, and they decided to annihilate the Jewish people, that's not something that the Talmud has to come and give us a whole brainstorm of an, of an example to understand what, what's going on over here. We open up our yearly favorite book, the book of the Haggadah, in which we relate every Passover, we relate the story of the Exodus. We all pick up the cup by one of the most moving moments at the Seder, and we sing a song together. We sing the song of Ehisha Amdalavisenu. And at that song, we proclaim and we say it was only God, your promise, that saves the Jewish people at all times. Shalom Echad Bilvad, there wasn't only one time or one nation. Amad Aleinu that stood up against us, Lechaloseinu, in order to annihilate us. Elashebechol Doir Vadoir, in every generation, Omdim Aleinu, they stand up against us, Lechaloseinu, to destroy us. This is an ancient story. This is a not. And in every generation, there are the Hamans and the like that come around. That was Pharaoh, and then it was Bilam, or as the Magadha says, even Lavana Arami, when we were just a tiny little family. And then you had the Buchanetzar, and you had Titus, who destroyed the temple. And then you had Ferdinand and Isabella, and then you had the Crusaders, and you had Chemelinitsky, who had the big, big pogroms, and you had a Hitler. And you had Stalin, and you had any the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on throughout all of history. And we had Yasser Arafat as well. It doesn't stop. And this has been an ongoing thing. So what does the Gemara Bechlau, why does the Talmud have to give us some metaphor in order to explain something that without the metaphor we would be puzzled? The other thing is that every element of Torah is true and accurate. So when the Talmud gives us a metaphor, it, it's not just the general idea that two people are, both of, them want to get, both of them are happy to get rid of the Jewish people, so you give a, find a nice story where both... But the fact that the Talmud compares Achashverosh to a person that has a mound in his field, and the Talmud compares Haman to someone that has a ditch. So what's the reason why... What, what, now, Achashverosh having a mound of earth, we can understand. 
Ahasuerus was a king over 127 countries. Basically the entire civilized world, that was his empire. I don't know why exactly. The, all the provinces, it was the whole Middle East and the extended uh, area over there, that it was all under his rule. Fine. Now, he has this, these people that he sees as a nuisance. He sees them as something extra, something that doesn't belong. They're occupying space on his land. They're uninvited guests. They're here. I don't want them. So we can understand. That's like a pile of dirt. It's like, I need this space. And they're occupying the space. Who are they? What are they doing here? So we can understand why they're compared to a mound. But when we're looking to Haman, what's the significance that we say that to Haman, the Jewish people are compared to a ditch? Especially... When we think about the ideas as follows. A ditch, how do you get rid of a ditch? You fill the ditch, like the story. You take the earth and you fill the ditch. But what does Haman want to do? He takes the Jewish, he wants to annihilate the Jewish people. Annihilating the Jewish people is not filling. Annihilating the Jewish people, see by getting rid of something, you can't fill something by getting rid of something. When you're getting, when you're destroying something, then you're then you're you're making it disappear. So how can you take nothingness and what and what do you and what are you what are you left with? You're left with nothing. How can you fill a ditch with nothing? You, in order to fill a ditch, you need to fill it with something. But what does he? I mean, you can say it physically, you can take the dead Jews and put them there. But that's not what we're talking about. What does it mean over here? That he want he had a ditch and he wanted to fill the ditch. By destroying the Jewish people. So to understand this, and ideas like this, we the Jewish people have been in exile for close to the last 2,000 years. That means we have been uprooted from our country, from our land, we've been dispersed amongst the nations. And that is that Jews have to always, always, always remember that our survival is only, 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 and only, only again, dependent on God's providence. In other words, in this that the Jewish people are helping and doing and teaching and instructing or whatever is, and as a result of that creating a friendship between Jew and non-Jew, the Jew has to always understand and appreciate that he cannot and ever, ever, ever look for the Gentile people, for the, gent, for the Gentile nations to be their, their protectors. We're living in a world where there are, as this Talmud, the Talmud refers to it, the Jewish people are like one sheep among 70 wolves or 70 lions, different, uh, different versions of it. A one little sheep amongst a whole bunch of hungry lions has very, very, very weak, very, very weak, or pr- probably its, its chances to survive is zero. And it would make sense that perhaps the sheep looks around amongst the lions and tries to find a friendly lion in which it can kind of buddy up with, if that's possible. Will the Jewish... So, the rule is, and that's the rule, the Talmud tells us. The verse, it's in, in, in Proverbs. It says, Chesed lu'umim chatas. The kindness of the nations, kindness of the nations is sinful. Now, not going into the whole talk about, what are you talking about? Of course, Gentiles can do kindness. That, that's not, I'm not even going there. In regards to the Jewish people, 
to think that our survival can be based on the friendship, friends that we make, that will protect us, and stand and watch over us during a program, or during some chas v'shalom, these things are already passed. Hopefully they will never, ever, and for sure they will never happen again in history. But in, 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 in theory, the fact that people should, God should think that we can expect protection, that we can expect to be saved by this one or by that one, that is false hopes. We find the Navi. What I'm saying is pure, it's just Torah. I'm not, I'm not sharing any of my own, my own things. The Navi tells us, listen to this, in Sefer Yecheskel, it says that the Jewish people in the time of Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah the prophet, Nebuchadnezzar was a great threat to the, to the, to the base of Migdash. And the end of Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the first temple. But at that time, the Navi Yermio told the Jewish people that we should make an allegiance with Nebuchadnezzar. We should send our taxes to him. We should, we should be subservient to him. For whatever reason, the Jewish, many of the Jewish people felt that it would be better for us to align ourselves with Egypt. So it says over there, God tells the Navi to prophesize a very, very great catastrophe is going to come upon Egypt. Egypt is going to fall. Egypt is going to... Why? Because they were a... They were a support. A support of a reed. To the Jewish people. When you try to lean on a stick, so if the stick is firm, it will hold you up. You have a cane. But if it's made out of a reed, a reed is soft. So if you lean your, your weight... On a reed, what's going to happen? It's going to crumble. It's going to fall because it's, it's, it, it doesn't have any strength. When the Jewish people went and they leaned against the prophet, they went and they did their political, their political, uh, uh, and came to their conclusions that it makes sense for us to align ourselves with the Pharaoh of Egypt and that he's going to protect us against the Bukhanetzar. God says that that reed is going to come crashing down. It says over there, uh, when you, they will lean upon them, Tishaver will break. Now, the question, however, is we are told not to lean on any foreign powers, not to believe, for instance, that survival of the Jewish people is on the American government because of the arms and so on and so forth, that America will protect Israel or the like. But we are also told, on the other hand, we're told by again by Yermio Anavi. It says, You should seek out the peace of the city in which you are going to exile. Yermio Anavi is instructing the Jewish people. And he's telling them, when you go to exile, try to get yourself situated in a good way amongst the nations. So pray for the peace of that country. Not, not just seek out, not only look out for the well-being of your host, but pray for her, El Hashem, because in her peace, you will have peace, which seems to be contradictory ideas. Here it says, don't try to fit yourself in, don't try to make yourself friends amongst the nations, because don't rely on all the promises and all the protections and all of that, because they won't come through when they need to. But then we are told, Precisely the opposite. Make peace. And if we look in Jewish history, we find that, and this is going through all the times, in the time of the 
second base, like the Jewish people actually made a pact with Nebuchadnezzar for a while, and they gave their taxes and and, and so on and so forth. And this was with the instruction of the Navi, and so it was also in the time of the first temple, during the entire period, a second temple. I'm sorry, during that time, there were it, the, the the rabbis of the time, and these were rabbis who truly were holy people, and they cared about the survival of the Jewish people, and they did make various different alliances and made different bribes and different connections and used the political powers and so forth in order to advance the Jewish cause. Especially when the Jewish people went into exile, throughout history, it has always been that way. So how do we reconcile the fact of be not relying on the Gentiles, but yet we are told to try to make as many connections as we can politically to try to get friends that will be supportive of, of Israel or be supportive of the Jewish people. And the answer is one verse in Tehillim. The verse in Tehillim says like this, Im Hashem lo ir, If God does not protect the city, Shav shaket shomer. It is in vain that the shomer, the guard, you, you, you hire a security guy, you have a guard, it's all in vain of the diligence of this guard, even if it's a very, very diligent guard, and he's armed to the teeth. If God is not going to protect this city, then all that is in vain. So what does that say like this? If you have the Abishter's protection, if you know that that God does not sleep, and God does not, does not, does not take a nap, and that He's watching vigilantly over the Jewish people, and you know that that's, and that's our power and that's our strength and that's our support and we know that, then being that we are living in a natural world, it is incumbent upon us to seek out some kind of natural means for us to be able to survive. So yes, as we said before, we're amongst the 70 wolves. Try to befriend the ones that seem to be less vicious or those that are not that hungry right now. Try to connect yourself, try to make connections, try to put yourself into a better place, a place of chance. As long as you're no fit, you don't put your trust into that government, or into that political party, or into that president, or that minister, or that ruler, or that... You don't put your trust in them, because you have your trust in Hashem. It's only that what? We are commanded by God to work within the natural means around us. It's just like when it comes to livelihood, that's the rule. Even though God is the one that feeds us and gives us every nickel and every dime that we have, yet we are obligated to go out and work for a living. And we can't sleep in bed all day and say, God, fill my pockets with gold. Even though the truth is that God is filling our pockets with gold. Because you're not getting your money from whichever natural means. We are being given all of our livelihood and our sustenance directly by Hashem. Yet, we are obligated to do something in the natural world. So the Jewish people are obligated for their survival, to watch out for their survival, to try whatever they can in a natural way, in the best way. But based on what? On their knowledge that Hashem is the one that's protecting. If that's the case, so it's like this. If, if you estimate, in those days, the time of Yermio the prophet, and the Jewish people are looking out, and they're seeing that maybe Mitzrayim, Egypt, together with Ashur, with Assyria, these two nations have a much larger, combined have a much greater military power than Nebuchadnezzar. 
So let's align ourselves with Egypt and with Assyria. Let's use our connections. But the Navi, the prophet says, don't do that. I don't have those instructions from God. My instructions I have from Hashem is to go with the weaker one, or at least the one who looks to be weaker now. And that is the Vuchanetzar. And we'll pay him the taxes. And we will, be, we will befriend him. That's what the Navi tells us to do, the prophet tells us to do. But the Jewish people, the politicians, don't want to listen. The Pasuk says, the Pasuk says, Ashur lo The Assyrians will not help us. Al susloy nirkav, on a horse we will not ride. What does that mean? Egypt was known for horses. So they'll supply us with the horses that we need, either for battle or to escape. No, 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 no. If it's not with God's consent, it is doomed to fail. You can have all the natural causes and all the natural uh, um, um, uh, calculations and everything can work out perfectly on the book. It's not going to work when it comes to the Jewish people. If Hashem says to align yourself with Nebuchadnezzar, that's what you do. Not because Nebuchadnezzar has power, but because you know God is your power. And this is what God said, so this is the instructions what you have to do. And then Nebuchadnezzar is only like an axe in the hand of the carpenter. The axe doesn't have any ability, doesn't have any power. It's the carpenter. The carpenter is God. He's using the axe. So Nebuchadnezzar is the instrument in which Hashem's will is being actualized. But it's not that he has any power on his own. Good. <laughs> That's very good. This all works out really well when we have a what? All of this works out perfectly when we have a prophet. And the prophet can tell us clearly who we should align ourselves with. What happens when there's no prophet? So what do we do? Where do the Jewish people go for survival? And the answer is, here's the idea. The basic rule is as follows. You can use your own mind. You can look around to see what seems to be the best path. And throughout history, okay, we had to, to maneuver. We had to maneuver between all the countries that we were and who. You know, when there were two political fi- powers fighting, we had to try to figure out who are the ones. But with one condition. If when you befriend whichever government or, 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 or power it is, you come to a sense of security and you feel that, okay, God... You can go now. We're fine. We, we can close our psalms, our tehillim. We don't have to give the tzedakah. We made, we have a big friend over here. This guy really, really loves us. So God, it's okay without you now. We're going to be okay without you because we have this big benefactor, this great powerful ruler in our side. Then, oops, 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 oops. The moment we do that, we, do, we have to, a fatal mistake. A fatal mistake. If on the other hand, before we go to meet any politician, any ruler, any force that can secure, you know, the, 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 that can, we were hoping can help us strengthen our standing during exile. But before we go, we say to Hillim, we say Psalms, we're praying to God. And then when we go and we have the meeting, and the meeting was successful, and we received the promise, we walk out. And we say to Hillam again, this time we're praising and we're thanking God for His protection. That means we're very, very conscious and we're very aware that it's only Hashem who's the one that's going to help us. Then if we do that, then we're on the right track.
then we know that the connections that we're making are stable and strong and they're really going to work out. As long as we recognize that it's only an external action that we are doing, it's an external action because God wants us to pretend that we are a natural people living a natural existence. Even though in essence we're a miraculous people. But the moment we think that, wow, ooh, we have... Uncle Sam is going to take care of us. This one is going to take care of us. That one is going to take care of us. We have a missile defense system coming from so forth. They just now put in Israel a, a, a what do they call it, a defense um, arrow three. And that's going to protect us against all Iranian missiles. Or we have an Elijah, and we have a very good relationship with Trump. Or we have this, or we have with that one. The moment we start relying on these things as if these things have real power and have strength, then we make a big boo-boo. You know who did that? There was someone who was even supposed to be Moshiach. His name was Berkoziva. Shimon Bar Kochva, known as Bar Kochva. And he was supposed to lead the revolt against the Romans. And he amassed the Jewish army that was so skilled and so powerful that these Jewish young men, they tested them in order to go to war to belong in Perkoziva's army that had a test. You know what that test was? They had to bite their finger off in order to show their heroism. And then the rabbis didn't like it. So the rabbis said, you're turning them into balmum. You're turning these young men into uh, people with a blemish. So they had another test. They had to ride on a horse, each of them. And when they went riding on the horse, they had to rip out two trees. During their riding, rip out two trees from the ground. That's how strong these men were. He felt he has a powerful army. And the Jerusalem Talmud says that Perkoziva made this horrible mistake. He said to God as follows, God, I think I'm okay. We don't need your help, just don't help our enemies. That's what he said. We don't need your help, just don't help our enemies. If you don't mix in, so if we, 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 we will fight this war, we will be fine. And then we know what happened. The, the revolt, the Jewish revolt was crushed. The Romans brought, this brought such a vicious massacre and bloodbath in the history of the Jewish people, one of the greatest bloodbaths in the history of the Jewish people came after the fall of Betar with Ben Kurziva. What was his mistake? What was his mistake? Naturally, he set up his armies. He looked at his strength versus the strength of the opponent of the army of the Romans. He was stronger. So why, why can't we rely on that? And the answer is nature has nothing to do with the Jewish people. Nature is nature. It, the natural world is true for the rest of the humanity. God doesn't exist in nature. And the Jewish people are a piece of Hashem from above. We are pieces of God. We're God's Hashem's child. If the father doesn't live in nature, the child doesn't either live in nature. Our, our existence is not natural. And therefore, the moment... So someone will say, okay, we don't... We're not, we're not limited by nature, but we're not worse than nature. So if naturally we can win a war, why is it? It's only that we the Jewish people are not limited by nature. So we're nature plus. No, it doesn't work that way. We're either the weakest or we're the strongest. When God is with us, we're the strongest. We're unbeatable. And when God is not with us, then we are the weakest. We will be destroyed by anybody. And that's what happened when the Jewish people went out of Egypt. They questioned whether God was with them. In other words, in their mind, God wasn't with them. 
And if God is not there, then even a clan, a small group of Amalekites, can come out and wreck and wreak havoc upon the powerful Jewish people at that time. Because if Hashem is not there, we amount to nothing. And that's just the bottom basic rule of existence. And we can always, always, especially with the modern state of Israel, and now the power that we have, we have a strong military, one of the strong militaries in the world. Guess what? The F-16 plane came down last week. Just a little bit, whatever reason it was, how the missile took it down. Just a little reminder. We, the Jewish people, cannot rely on our own strength, not rely on armies. It's not that we don't have to. We have to have the strongest army in the world. We need to train our soldiers to be the strongest in the world. We need to do whatever we can. But at the same time, our power and our strength always is in the book of Tehillim. It's always in the recognition that God is with us. Because our existence is so supernatural, because we are not part of the normal existence of mankind, that translates into an anti-Semitism that there is in the world that is just an absolute fact. And it will not go away until after Mashiach comes. Even though we've spoken amazingly in the last couple of weeks how the Gentile world, how the world in general has become refined and elevated and certain things that were once considered acceptable, certain behaviors like aggression, like uh, uh, plundering and, 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 uh, and, and conquest that were years ago, they were heralded as great heroic acts, like Alexander the Great goes down in history. Why? He was a, he was, he was a ruler. He killed millions of people in his desire for power. And that's what historians wrote as, as, as an accomplishment, as a great power. Today's days, if someone would try doing something like that, he would be considered a monster. The whole world would get up against him. So we do see that mankind advanced in civilization. In that sense, the world becomes more and more Moshiach ready. That's true. But one thing doesn't change along all of this, and that is the hatred to the Jewish people. In other words, you would say, if the non-Jews are ready for Moshiach, why doesn't everybody love us? Nope, that will never change. We will always be disliked. But there's two types of anti-Semitism. And that's the difference between Ahasuerus' anti-Semitism and the anti-Semitism of Haman. Compared to the mound and the ditch. What's the difference between the two? What's the story with a mound? A mound is a piece of earth that doesn't belong. What are you doing here? I have a field. This is my field. What are you doing in my field? There is an, this is all subconscious, by the way. It's not a, a conscious understanding. The Jewish people are not of planet Earth. We're not of the nations of the world. We're not of this... You know, going back to the womb, Yaakov and Esau were inside Rebekah's womb and Rivka's womb. They had an argument. And in and, and their argument, they basically each one wanted, wanted control over everything. And they made a deal. Esau said... I'm going to take this world, and Yaakov says, I'm going to take the world to come. So Yaakov is a heavenly being. He belongs, he's a spiritual being. He's, his entire being is godliness. Spiritual, that's his world. Physical, material world. We, we live on earth. We come down to this world in order to remake earth, to elevate earth, but we're not part of earth. Subconsciously, every human being feels that. So therefore, we, the Jewish people, occupy space in this world we're like aliens, literally. We're like aliens who invaded the planet. That's the reality. And make a difference what we look like. It doesn't make a difference if we speak eloquent French. 
If we walk around and we have all the mannerism, we try to assimilate ourselves into society and be perfectly, it doesn't make a difference if we're not going to be the, 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 what is it called, the, um, the, uh, the, the, what do they call it when you have like a, the, the, the picture of the Jew, you know, with the crooked nose and, and, and the long beard with the, with the torn clothing and, and with his casket like that. Well, we're not going to be that. Jews are going to and the Jews throws his tefillin away, removes his tefillin, tucks his tzitzis in so no one should see, closes his, opens his store on Shabbos, will close his store on Sunday, will behave, will get himself a non-Jewish name, and will behave exactly like the non-Jew. It's not going to make a difference. Subconsciously, you're Jewish, you don't belong. What are you doing here? That's Achashverosh's hatred, and it can't go away. There's nothing that can be done. He dislikes the Jewish people because we are an extra. We're extra. Something because the truth is we're not part of this world. That's the reality. Here's the thing: being politically correct at this class right now isn't going to change anything. <laughs> I can avoid talking about a painful subject. But it's not going to change anything. This is the reality for the last three thousand years. The Jewish people were never accepted as part of. People were always trying to figure out we're going to put the Jews. Right? So then they said you're going to put the Jews in Uganda. Stalin thought he's going to put the Jews. He was at a certain point, he said he's going to create a certain land that I don't know where, and where he's going to send all the Jews over there. Finally, they said, okay, we're going to send the Jewish people to Israel, and maybe like this, we're going to finish all the problems in the world. And this only brought all the new problems. <laughs> it's a problem. Mankind, the world, humanity doesn't know what to do with the Jewish people. But then there's a different type of a hatred, and that's Haman. Haman is a whole different story. You see, Achashverosh hates the Jews because he wants everybody to be equal and the Jewish people are not equal. They're something else. Haman has another different thing. Haman wants to be the superior race. He wants to be the supreme human being. But when he sees the Jew, he realizes the Jew has something that he doesn't have. And what does the Jew have? The Jew has a certain connection to God. The Jew has this unique connection, attachment to Hashem. And this is related to the giving of the Torah. When God gave the Torah to the world, God, should, God gave us a special gift, a special connection, a special godliness, which is eternal, which is a Torah which is a Torah of life, which means eternal life. And the nations had the choice to, to accept the Torah. They didn't. It says that God offered the Torah to the various different nations. Whatever that means, how He offered it to them. But that's what it says, He offered it to the nations, and they declined it. So now Haman feels when he sees a Jew, Amalek, this is Amalek. Amalek, when he sees a Jew, he sees there's something there that, 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 that this person has, something eternal, something rich, something true, something real, and I don't have it. And because I don't have it, it creates a powerful sense of emptiness. What's a ditch? A ditch is emptiness. There's a deep vacuum, there's a deep vacancy, there's a deep hole in his heart. Oh, it's, there's a certain jealousy over here. He sees he has... Now, you say, that's a Jew that's doing all the mitzvah. No, no, no. Even a Jew who doesn't do any mitzvahs has a letter in the Torah. Every Jew is connected to the Torah. Every Jew is connected to this spiritual godly light. Haman knows that light. Achashverosh is clueless. He doesn't know what we're doing here. We're aliens. Like, what are we even doing on the planet? Haman knows what we are all about. He knows that we are a godly being, people. And that's creating in him something he doesn't have. And he knows that in a thousand or maybe ten thousand years, he's going to live in this world, then he's going to die, and in ten thousand years or in a thousand years, whatever, gone. There was no, nothing left of him. 
And he knows that this person has something connected to that's, that, 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 that's eternal, something real. And that's hurting. And that's deeply aggravating Amalek. So what's his, what's his solution? He has a solution. He can come to the Jewish people and say, teach me, connect me also to what you're connected to. Give me a little bit of what you, are, what you have. And as we said in the beginning of the class, we can do that for all of mankind. We can teach and educate and allow all of mankind to keep their seven Noahid laws and to achieve a connection and live a higher life. We could do that. But he doesn't want to do that because he, that, that he doesn't want. Because that takes work and so on and so forth. And he's not willing to give up and make sacrifices. So he wants to live the life that he lives, the godless life that he lives, but it bothers him that there's someone else that does have a connection to God in a real deep way, and that hurts him. And that's digging inside of him. And he can't bear it. So he says like this, this and what's the only option? When something is special that's, that your person is jealous of, so what do you do? If you make sure that someone else doesn't have it, and you eradicate and you destroy that being... So if you kill all the Jews, then what's going to happen? Torah won't exist anymore. We find that when Moshe Rabbeinu, God wanted to destroy all the Jewish people after the eagle, Moshe broke the luchos, because if the Jewish people are not going to be here, there's no need for the Torah. What happened? The Torah went back to heaven. The letters of the luchot went flying back up to Shemayim. They left. So if there's no Jewish people in the world, and there's no Torah in the world, so that thing, that, that higher reality doesn't exist. Once it doesn't exist, so then it's not going to be a ditch anymore. We ask the question, how can you eliminate a ditch by destroying something? The answer is, the emptiness comes when I see you have something and I don't. Why do people get so upset at a religious people? Why are people always so, sometimes so angry at a religious person? <laughs> the answer is, because I know you have something. I would like to have it, but I can't bring myself to do it, so I'm bothered by the fact that you have it. So Haman has that. So therefore what? If he gets rid of all the Jews, finished, it's going it's to allow him to sleep peacefully at night. He's not bothered. That's the unique animosity of a Amalek. And that's why he comes to Achashverosh and he offers him. Now what are the Jewish people supposed to do in such a situation? There's no one to go to. Who are you going to go to? Achashverosh? Achashverosh also despise. He doesn't have the same deep, doesn't have that, that, that deep hole that Haman has. It's more of a spiritual hole that Haman has. Haman hates the soul of the Jewish people. Achashverosh just, just feels, sees them as extra pieces of, of, of extra, extra matter in this world. But still, who are you going to go to? Who are you going to turn to for this, for, 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 to, to, to remove this, this, this decree? The answer is Mordechai HaTzadik. What does he do? There's no one to turn to, only to God. Because if you get God's blessing and we survive because Hashem wants us here. So what does Mordechai do? He gathers together 22,000 Jewish children and he studies Torah with them. And they fast for three days and three nights. That's what he does. And what does Esther do? She's told to go to the king. But as I mentioned a few times in earlier classes, she does something ridiculously insane. She's going to be walking to the king when, no one, when she wasn't called to come to the king for many, many times. The king is paranoid. He's afraid someone wants to assassinate him. So Esther is not... No one can come, even his own wife. She's going to go to a dangerous place that if he turns to her and, he, and he, she captures his, 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 his attention because she's, she, she's beautiful, he will see her and he will want to, be, to have her in his company. So then he will, he will call for her or else she will be killed. She has one minute. To, it's not, not even a minute. It's, thir, it's, it's maybe 15 seconds in which he's going to look at her. So 
the right thing for her to do is to go to the beauty parlor for three days. And then she's going to go see the king. And then she's going to land the job. Not to land the job, but she's going to land. <laughs> then he's, she's going to find favor in his eyes. And he's going he's gonna, to... He's... But what does she do? She goes and she tells them to fast for three days and three nights. She also fasts for three days and three nights. Now imagine what she's going to look like after fasting for three days and three nights. She fasts for three nights. It's not that she's not going to prepare herself. An hour before she has to meet the king, she will get dressed, she will put on makeup, she will prepare herself, she will make her hair, she will make herself look good. But that's the last thing on her mind. The first thing is our survival is not dependent on beauty parlors. Our survival is not dependent on the affection of a king. Our survival is dependent only on one thing, on God being there. And the God's mercy you get through the, through the Siddur, through praying, through Torah, through mitzvot, that's how we get Hashem's love and we get Hashem's grace. And that's the entire story of Purim. So to conclude, I would like to conclude with, I think in the world, if you try to, um, actually it was my own thought, today in the morning I met Rabbi Tzvi Freeman and I mentioned to him a story and he, and he told me an interesting idea. He said these two hatreds that there were in modern day was Hitler and Stalin. Um, Hitler's hatred to the Jewish people was one of Haman. It was one of a, in other words, the Jewish people caused him deep internal grief and emptiness. Was, he wanted to be like the ultimate race and the ultimate people. And the fact that there were the Jews in the world, that, that, that disturbed him. This is a Haman-like, a Haman-like hatred. Stalin's hatred to the Jewish people because he wanted everybody to be equal. But he couldn't fit the Jewish people into it. Like something extra. See, here's an amazing story, um, which happened on Purim, which we talk about the uh, eradication of Haman, Haman or Achashverosh, in this sense, from the world. Um, in 1953, in the winter of 1953, this was in, uh, probably in January, in 1953, in a Russian newspaper, I think called the Pravda, that was the name of the newspaper, they announced that they just uncovered a nasty terrorist plot of, of doctors that are prestigious doctors that these doctors want to um, want to and, and not only wanted to but they had treated mistreated certain patients um, intentionally and brought that these people brought death to a couple of um, people, political people that they wanted to kill, and uh, pose a tremendous threat to the country. And, it, and, and there was a whole long article, uh, announcement, saying that this is all under the investigation, and that these people are part of the American, it's an American plot, similar to what's, uh, we're, we're trying to find the Russian plot now in the United States. This was an American plot in Russia, in which they're, 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 they're trying to infiltrate and this group of doctors are by the American wing, which is run by the Jews, called the Joint. And they're the ones who are funneling the money in to these doctors and, and basically to undermine the Russian government by using their professional medical skills to harm, to harm the government and harm people in Russia. This thing was, was publicized. And then after that, 
there were, it just created tremendous propaganda. And in all news reports, and in all, everybody, in all newspaper articles after that, people were just building and building and building upon this story. And it was becoming more and more and more outright, openly anti-Semitic. That the Jews are behind it all. They went, they arrested nine doctors. Six of them were Jews, very prominent doctors. Three of them weren't, but six of them were Jews. And they said the trial would be and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, they're going to interrogate them. And in addition to that, they, they set up explanatory meetings in all universities, in all colleges, in all schools, in all in factories, in hospitals, wherever there were, to explain to the masses the tremendous danger and how to be very wary of doctors, especially Jewish doctors. This created a very, very, very terrible state of affairs. I was reading the book by the person who writes, he was in Russia during that time, a Jewish man, Rabbi Zaltzman. The book is called Samarkand. Everybody can, can, it's an amazing book to read. In which he describes the horrible fear that gripped the Jews in Russia during that time. To the point that there was anti-Semitism, the, the, the people were scared to go out on the street. He says a brother-in-law of his was on a bus, and people started taunting him on the bus. No one defended him, and he tried to defend himself, and an army, an army, when a soldier, an army official came over to him, grabbed him, and just threw him off the bus. People were terrified. And this was clearly a major liable that was building. And again, and, this was, and they were building. This whole thing was just building and building and building in terms of its animosity and hatred. Turns out that what was really going on was that Stalin had decided that he wants to uh, kind of get rid of the Jews. And his plan, which they found out only later, was as follows. In 1953, this was his plan. His plan was that there would be a trial. The trial was set to be on March 5th. On, I'm sorry, March 5th they would find them guilty. On March 12, these doctors would be executed. This would set off terrible pogroms all across Russia, much worse than the pogroms in the days of Tsarist Russia. Then Father Stalin would come to the rescue of the Jewish people, in which he will call the Jewish people in order to protect them and to save them. He's going to send them off to Siberia. In which he was planning to send, and they had already, in all the major cities, they had already trains prepared, to take the Jews, they had 40,000 barracks built deep, deep in Siberia for all the Jewish people that would be deported. And the plan was as follows. A third of the Jewish people would be killed in the pogroms. A third of the Jewish people would die on the trains when they were taking them over there because they weren't planning them on giving them any food and any heat or anything. They would freeze to death. And a third would arrive to the barracks. That was a literal plan. In other words, he wanted to finish, at least in Russia, what Hitler started. This happened in 1953. Chav Vav Tevis, the English date, I'm not exactly sure uh, when they made this first announcement that they p- uncovered this plot. It was an extremely dangerous time for the Jews in Russia. Meanwhile, here's an amazing story. In Crown Heights, in 770, the Lubavitcher Rebbe already a, a month, two months before that, started speaking a lot about the Mesiras Nefesh of Russian Jews and how difficult it is and how the Jews in the thick of exile still maintain their connection to God. At that time, the Rebbe asked they should sing, anybody knows the song Animamin, which was a song that was actually made during the Holocaust, Belief in Mashiach. And the Rebbe asked they should sing that song and he sang it and he sang it. And people were wondering because it's a song of like, 
which was made in the darkest of times. And why was the Rebbe pushing this song? And it's a deep yearning for Mashiach, but the, people can see that something was going on. A month later, five days before the plot was announced on, 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 on Russian television, five days before that, in an ordinary day which had no explanation, the Rebbe had a mimer, a discourse of his father-in-law that was said 30 years prior to that, published, called Ein HaKadosh Baruch Hu Ba Betrunyim of God does not come with a libel against his children, against his, creature, his, his creations. And in that, in that mimer, it talks about how, how the Jewish people have tremendous mesiras nefesh, tremendous um, self-sacrifice for God, and how even in the darkest of times, they're able to... It's an amazing discourse. And you can see people realize that something is going on, that the, but no one knew what was happening. But it all, the strangest thing happened on February 28th, which was Purim by night. It was Purim by night, the Rebbe came into a Fabrengen to sit with the Chassidim, and he gave 11 talks. Talks, they sing, L'chaim, another talk, they sing, L'chaim, another talk, and so on and so forth. He said a Hasidic discourse at the beginning, and then right before, he never did this before, and every, disc, every Hasidic gathering there would be talks but there was one Hasidic discourse called a mimer at this Fabrengen the Rebbe said a mimer twice once all the way at the end and it was almost already very very late almost morning maybe like 3 o'clock in the morning where the Rebbe said the, the mimer but before he said the mimer he told the story the amazing thing the Rebbe said like this he said that it was in the days of the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Reb Sholem Dov Ber, in Russia, right after they overthrew the Tsar. And there was elections taking place in Russia. It was for a temporary government. And the Rebbe told all the Hasidim to go vote. There was one Hasid who was not very aware of what's going on. He was a Hasid who was immersed the whole day in learning and davening and so on and so forth. But if the Rebbe said to go vote, he, what is, he doesn't know, even know what vo- voting really is. But he goes, he goes to the mikveh, because before he do something the Rebbe says, he puts on a, a, a gartel, like he's, and he goes to the voting booth. He comes there, he has no idea what to do, he watches what everybody is doing, and he's watching for a while, and he sees, and one thing he knew the name of who he's supposed to vote for, and he made the vote, he, he cast his vote, and fine. Then he steps to the side and he sees a, a group of, of, uh, of, um, of uh, people that were cheering for a certain candidate. And they're cheering and they're cheering and in their cheering they're screaming, hooray, 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 in, in I guess the way the Russians say hooray. The, it sounded more like hoorah, hoorah, hoorah. That was the way they said hooray. So he's standing on the side, not knowing what this is, and he, they're cheering. So he thought they're saying, hoorah, he is bad. Hoorah, he is bad. Hoorah, he is bad. So he joins along, and he started yelling with them, Hoorah, he is bad, hoorah. And as the Rebbe says the story, the Rebbe gets a big smile on his face, and the Rebbe mimics the Chassid, and he puts his hand and he goes, Hoorah, hoorah, And Chassidim were like, whoa. Then the Rebbe turned to his right side, repeated the story again, and said three times, hoorah, hoorah to his right. Then he turned to his left side, repeated the story again, and said again, hoorah, and this time all the Hasidim were saying along, hoorah, hoorah. After that, the Rebbe became very serious, and he said the last Hasidic discourse of the night, and then the Fabrengen was over. A few days later, they announced in Russia, this guy writes the story, and they announced in Russia, he remembers when the announcement came, 
that Comrade Stalin, the, whatever, how, all the titles they gave him, fell ill a couple of days ago. And is, is very ill. And They, however, knew that that's very strange that they would say that he's ill. It probably means that he dies, but they don't want to shock the country. And then a, f- a few days later, on March 9th, they announced his death. And the morning that was going on, people literally fainted and people died because they had such a propaganda machine in, in, in Russia about how Stalin is the ultimate savior even though he killed 20 million people. But in any case, um, you look it up now, Google it. The real night when Stalin died, or what happened was like this, February 28th, it's that night, Purim by night. He didn't die right away. He had a massive, they found him in his room, this, Different theories of how Stalin died. Either he was poisoned, he was killed, he had a stroke. There's so many different, no one knows exactly, but he had a, definitely collapsed. They found him uh, unconscious. February 28th, which is Purim by night. And the date of death that they have for him is March 5th, a few days later, which is the 18th day of Adar. So it was at that Fabringen, where the Rebbe was sitting, where after all the spiritual work that he was doing, he actually took down a literal Haman in the world. The people didn't realize that. See, I heard the story years ago, but until today when I read the full extent of the story, I didn't realize what kind of danger the Jewish people, the, the Jews in Russia were in. Literally, this was, would have been some kind of a holocaust and a total annihilation of all, all the Jewish people in Russia where the Rebbe uh, prevented all this from happening. So we have to realize that one thing. Our trust and our strength and our abilities is only with the Abishter, only with God, only with his servants, the tzaddikim. And I'm just going to conclude that it's this very same Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who told us now that we are at the threshold of redemption and that we should anticipate his coming every, any day. And it's an, uh, up to us to do that extra little something to make him come. So Hashem, if we will all take that seriously and disregard everything else that's going on, disregard all of that, but to know with absolute certainty that we're living in the most important of all times, in the greatest of times, and just the tiny little act of holiness and goodness that we can do can change things forever. May we merit to see it now. Oh, yeah.